Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words in my mouth and may the thoughts and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it's not the kind of conversation uh, that you would expect to find on a subreddit, uh, an internet forum about board games. Well, several months ago, uh, just before Christmas, uh, a woman posts the following question. How, she asks, how do I prepare my kids to lose? In the paragraph that follows, uh, she describes her family's situation, that she and her husband have five kids. They have five kids, uh, but two of them were recently adopted. And those two kids, she says, they struggle a lot with losing. One of them, she says, he, he just lashes out, and so when he loses, uh, he gets into a fight with his siblings. But the other one, our daughter, when she loses, it just crushes her. Sometimes she cries, sometimes she pouts, but, but usually she just gets really quiet, and then she won't interact at all, and, and you can tell that this mom is struggling. All she wants to do is to have her kids play together, but she's at a loss. She doesn't know what to do. And so as risky and as unhelpful as it often is, she turns to the wisdom of the internet. How do I prepare my kids to lose? Now what you need to know is that uh, I came across this post because I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor preaching on today's gospel reading, and a little bit later, uh, Jesus says the word, lose. I found myself curious uh, about this question because I'm a dad. I'm a dad of three kids, and what this woman wants for her kids, I want for mine. You see, this is not the reason that I took interest in what she and others had to say. I took interest in what she and others had to say because just like you, I'm human. And, uh, and a big part of the human experience is losing, even though we want to win. So she's talking about board games, and I'm thinking about what it was like growing up to have a best friend that would beat me every single time we played chess. And then I'm thinking about what it was like uh, to be in Little League back in the first grade. You see, we started the season uh, playing t-ball, and then about halfway through the season, our coach had the audacity to take the tee away. It's really hard to hit a little ball coming at you. You know, and then I'm thinking about what it was like to not get the job that I applied for in high school or not, not, uh, not get the uh, scholarship that I hoped for for college or not get any number of other things that I have wanted in life. And, and imagine that you got your stories too. That's because a big part of the human experience is losing even though we want to win. You know, whether that's a game or a competition or something at homework or school, we, we don't wake up in the morning thinking, I get to lose today. Wake up in the morning thinking, I want to win. If you're anything like me, that's what makes today's reading so challenging and so difficult because in a conversation with his disciples, Jesus essentially says to them and to us, be prepared to lose. 
So that brings us uh, to the gospel reading that I uh, mentioned uh, just a few moments ago. And as the curtain rises on this story, Jesus and his disciples, they find themselves about as far north as they are going to go. They find themselves uh, in the city of Caesarea Philippi. It's uh, located about 100 miles north of Jerusalem, a little bit more like 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and it's called Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea, Caesar's city because the Romans built it. And uh, there's so many Caesareas in the ancient world that they name it after the particular Roman that built it, Philip, Caesarea Philippi. And I'll also say that uh, the Caesarea Philippi isn't a Jewish city. It's a, a Gentile city. And so when Jesus gets there, it's little wonder that he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And, and you just imagine the kind of things that people are saying about this Jewish rabbi who's wandering around a Gentile city and he's got a history of performing hierical, miracles and healings. But you see, the, the disciples, they, they know what people are saying. I mean, what do people say you are? Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still more say that you're one of the prophets. But when Jesus asks this question, he doesn't just want to know what other people are saying. He wants to know what they are saying. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? I mean, you've been following me. You've been listening to me hopefully. And you've been, you've been watching me preach and teach. Who do you say that I am? You know, if you're one of the disciples, if, if you're Peter, I got to wonder if, uh, if you feel uh, this pressure to answer first. And then, and then I got to wonder, does this feel like a test? Because you've, you've watched Jesus interact with others, and, and you know that there are right and wrong answers when Jesus asks questions. We don't really know, uh, just like we don't know how long it takes for you to, to speak up and answer him, but, but when you do, you look at him and you say, you are the Christ. And it's, it's a one-word description, Christ but it's loaded with meaning. I mean, the word Christ, it means anointed one. And it's, it's the way that people would talk about kings in the Old Testament. Kings who were anointed with oil. But it goes even deeper than that. Because this word has come to mean something very specific. Something very particular in Jesus' day. You see, there were many kings in the Old Testament. Many anointed ones. Those kings went away. And that's because foreign armies came in, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now, now the Romans are in charge, and, and that fact would destroy you if God hadn't promised that another anointed one would come, another king who would save God's people and set things right. His reign will have no end. And so if you are Peter in today's reading, when you look at Jesus, when you say you are the Christ, you're saying that you know what it means to follow him and that you will do whatever it takes to make sure that he is in charge. Now, uh, Mark doesn't record this part of the story, but I got to imagine that it feels really good when Jesus gives you a gold star for having the right answer. 
See, Matthew tells us uh, that when, when, when you respond, Jesus looks at you and says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. But this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And that's why it's such an exciting moment. Just like it's an exciting moment for the rest of the disciples, because now Jesus can tell you what it means to be the Messiah. That it means suffering many things. That it means being rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that it means dying. And three days later, rising again. So what you need to know about this passage is that this is the first time that Jesus is telling his disciples what it means to be the Messiah. And so in a certain sense, this is news to them. But this is not good news. It's surprising news. And it's unexpected news. And quite honestly, it's blasphemous news. I mean, God's king, God's anointed one, isn't going to die. And he certainly isn't going to die like this. I mean, this isn't what it means to make all things right. This isn't what it means to save God's people. Plus, if Jesus dies, what does that mean for you? What does it mean if you're following him? And so if you're Peter in today's reading, this is why you you quietly pull Jesus aside because you have a few things you need to straighten out. And we don't know exactly what you say, but we do know how Jesus responds. He looks at you and says, get behind me, Satan. And then he looks out at us across time and he tells us what it means to follow him. Be prepared to lose. When he says that, he is talking about your life. And he's speaking both figuratively and literally. Now, it's been a number of years now, uh, but one of my my favorite things I got to do in my uh, former congregation was to lead chapel with our preschool. And uh, I may have told some of you this story before, so uh, forgive me if that's the case. Uh, but when I lead chapel, I'd bring our kids into our sanctuary. And, uh, and our, our sanctuary was kind of big, kind of like Messiah's, except instead of being two rows wide, it was four rows wide. And, and so when I'd lead chapel, I'd, I'd, I'd sort of create a, a space within a space. I'd pull out a, a table and some candles, and, and we'd gather with the kids right down up here in front. But on this particular day, uh, I was teaching the kids about Jesus' friends, the 12 men that we call his disciples. And uh, and our sanctuary didn't have a lot of art in it, but we did have these 12 plaques on our back wall. See, we had one plaque for each disciple. And and I thought it'd be a really good connection if we're talking about Jesus' disciples to, to show them each of these plaques. They could see that each of these men has has something in our, our sanctuary to remind us of them. So on this particular day, I, I had the kids sit all the way in back. And, you know, maybe you know how it goes uh, when you're doing stuff with kids. You have one idea in your mind about what it's going to be like, and then they respond in a way you never could have expected. So I tell them, uh, I tell them about Jesus' friends, Jesus' disciples, and then I ask them to turn around, and a kid in our fours class looks up at the back wall and he shouts out, Whoa! That one's got swords! 
Now, you can probably imagine the look that our preschool director gave me in that moment when she's like, I have no idea what we are going to do to straighten things out. But you see, um, in that moment, I, I saw something I'd never seen before. You see, we had 12 plaques on our back wall, 12 plaques for 12 disciples, and, and I thought that they were there just to identify Jesus' disciples. But they also told the story of how those men died. You see, uh, those swords that that kid was talking about, uh, they didn't belong to that disciple. They belonged to the man who skinned him alive. All these years later, it, uh, it strikes me that to take seriously what Jesus has to say in today's reading, it means a willingness to embrace something like that. See, a little earlier, I, uh, I paraphrased verse 35 uh, in today's reading. You know, Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And I, I paraphrased it with, uh, be prepared to lose. And I said that when Jesus is saying this, he's both speaking figuratively and literally. And when he says this, Jesus is ready to lose. But I'm not sure that I am. I mean, I don't like the, lie, the idea of losing my life literally. And I also don't like the idea of losing my life figuratively. I don't like the idea of, uh, of losing my friends and family. I don't like the idea of, of losing my, my job and my stuff my opinions, my, my political party, or, or anything else that I have. And I certainly don't like the idea of suffering in the midst of loss. I don't want to give any of that stuff up. And yet, um, isn't this exactly the kind of thinking that we hear in our world today? That when it comes down to losing something, our response should be, it's not what I signed up for. You see, it's in moments like this uh, that, uh, that Jesus pulls us aside just like he did Peter. Because it's this kind of thinking that leads to all sorts of unfaithfulness. I mean, it's this kind of thinking that leads us to question what God is doing because we think we know what's best. Or it's, uh, it's this kind of thinking that leads us to take matters into our own hands as if we have all of the power and, and we can use that power whenever we've got it to do whatever we want. Or it's this kind of thinking that leads us to add amendments to God's commandments. And, uh, and when that happens, Jesus pulls us aside. And he says the same thing he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because this kind of thinking the kind of thinking and living that says we are in charge, it's of the devil. And Jesus doesn't want that for us. Jesus doesn't want us to follow the ways of the world. He doesn't want Peter to do it. He doesn't want his disciples to do it. And he doesn't want us to do it because Jesus wants us to follow him. And following Jesus means being prepared to lose. You see, uh, the thing about Jesus is that he's the kind of guy who led by example. And so when Jesus said, be prepared to lose, he was prepared to lose. And, and he lost it all for us. I mean, he came down and he suffered many things. He was rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And then he died on a cross outside of Jerusalem for you. 
And yet, in his willingness to lose, he knew that he would conquer death. And you see, that's the beautiful thing about Jesus, because nothing can stand in his way. Nothing can hold him back. Nothing can keep him from completing his mission. And so, even though he knows that he is going to lose his life, he's going to win the battle. And in Jesus, we have already won our toughest battles. We have already won the battle over addiction and depression and anxiety. We have already won the battle over fear and doubt. We have already won the battle over hopelessness and sadness and sorrow. We have already won the battle over sin, death, and the devil. In Jesus, we have won the victory of eternal life. See, the difficult thing about life in this world is that more often than not, you're going to lose. And uh, we're going to experience all sorts of suffering, and it's the kind of suffering that we bring with us each and every week as we gather here in this place. But death doesn't get the last word in our lives. Jesus does. Because he defeated death, and his word is that resurrection is coming. And so even though we live in a broken, hurting, sinful world, we live with hope because Jesus has won the battle. We live with hope because Jesus is risen. We live with hope because we know that life and not death is the thing that awaits us. Now, if you, uh, if you scroll down the page of that post that I mentioned earlier in my sermon, you'll find that uh, by far and above, uh, the most upvoted answer comes from a teacher. How do you prepare to lose, he asks. Well, he says, you model it. You know, two things uh, strike me about his response. First, it strikes me that, uh, that this is exactly what Jesus does for us. He models what it looks like to lose. But the other thing that strikes me is that this is why God knits us together in the body of Christ. He knits us together so that we can model it to one another, and he knits us together so that we can model it to a world that is so desperately lost unless someone models it to them. Maybe this will give you some new perspective uh, the next time you lose, because this is the opportunity that we have every single time that we lose. Every single time that we lose, we have an opportunity to model Jesus to the world. And so when Jesus gives you that opportunity, here's my encouragement. Remember that he has won the victory, and then don't waste the opportunity. Because it is so precious and God uses it to show the world that just like us, the world can have hope too. In the name of Jesus.